Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our worship together. And it indeed has been a sweet time of worship up to this point. Thank you for that song. It was such a joy to be able to sing it with you together as a church congregation. Our hope alone is in Christ. And we'll be looking to him again now as we look to his word. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 16 is where we'll be this morning. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 977. And as you're turning there, just a reminder that we're continuing our series on the church. And to summarize where we've been thus far is rather simple. We saw in the first couple weeks that God's intention from eternity past was to save a group of people to represent him. And in this current day and age, that group of people is represented in what we call the church. The church is expressed in local congregations, just like this one. And as such, there are certain behaviors, there's a certain level of conduct expected of all those who belong to that church. Last week, we saw our gospel conduct, the obligation that we have to partner together to promote and protect the gospel as a church. This week, we're going to look at our cooperation, and there's no better text on the cooperation required and expected of a local church than Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. Let's read it together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry For the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. Do you know your IQ? Have you taken one of those tests lately? Have you ever taken one? (laughs) You could try it online for free. IQ supposedly is the measure of your intelligence. If I were to give you a a classic example of an IQ style test, it would be that of the peg game at Cracker Barrel. It tells you you're either an ignoramus or you're very brilliant based on the amount of pegs that you can get off the board. But there's another test that's also extremely important in assessing our capacity. And that is EQ. IQ is intelligence quotient. EQ is emotional quotient. EQ is the relational equivalent to the IQ. So if the IQ is the peg test at Cracker Barrel, the EQ is your ability to talk with the person in front of you. (laughs) How smooth that conversation goes is typically based on someone's ability to use and read the emotions of other people in a communication interchange. Which one comes more naturally to you? Because there's a fact that's in play here. No matter which one we value, it's hard to have both at the same time. And you all know this to be true. 
How many of you know someone who is absolutely brilliant when it comes to books and process and principle, but relationally they just really struggle? And then some of you know some of the most magnetic, people-loving individuals that could seem as dumb as a rock. Did you know that based on modern studies in psychology that it is virtually impossible for you to access both your EQ and your IQ at the same time? When you delve fully into the intellectual process, it naturally distances you from everyone around you. Think of the person sitting there playing the peg game. It's hard to have a great conversation and win the peg game at the same time. It's like a seesaw. When the intelligence, when the fat kid is on the, the intelligent side of the seesaw, don't laugh at that, you get it. Everybody's been on a seesaw with a bigger kid. When the fat kid's on the intelligent side of the seesaw, everything gets really high on the relational. And if he were to switch over to the relational side, I think my EQ might be down. <laughs> I apologize. The larger child moves to the relational side of the seesaw, the intelligent side goes up. Point, case in point. The truth is, as funny as it is, we all lean one way or the other and we know it. Some of you love the people side of things, some of you love the process kind of things. Some of you are extremely bright and brilliant. Some of you are extremely kind, affectionate, and loving. And it's a struggle, but it seems like we can never have both. And so the question comes for us in this series on the local church. If we had to have one, which one would Christ want us to have? Should a church be a place of intellect? Or should it be a place of emotion? And if it should be both, how? How? Because they so naturally seem to fight against one another. The book of Ephesians speaks to this. Paul has, in the first three chapters, gone very heavy on some intellectual explanation of the Christian faith. But beginning at chapter 4, he's going to transition into the emotional, to the interpersonal dynamics and show beyond all modern psychological belief that the things are actually to complement one another. It's not just about what we know, although what we know is important. It is also about how we relate and in fact, it may be more important than we've ever realized. The text simply calls for us to provide or exhibit both of these essentials. Both the knowing of truth and the loving of others. But how? How does that happen? Well, there's two essentials. Two essentials here in verses 1 through 16. The first you'll find in verses 1 through 6. And it comes in the form of a command. So you've got a command, and when you understand this command in its right context, it will enable this both and that we're seeking. The second is a contribution, verses 7 through 16. So there's a command for unity and relationship, and then there's a contribution that is made to that unity and relationship in verses 7 through 16. So let's look at this first essential together. The command for unity. Notice it's, it's very simple to, to read. You look in the first three verses and you see that Paul is concerned to tell them what to do. He's not suggesting anything here. He is actually telling them in light of everything that they've experienced up to this point. That they have some obligation. They've been called into a special relationship. They're now in Christ. They were kind of out on their own, on the fringes. They were in spiritual darkness. But now that they're in Christ, they need to live up to that. Almost like somebody being called up into the big leagues. 
All right, there's a certain decorum, there's a certain behavior that's expected of someone who's moving from minor league baseball to major league baseball. He's saying, all right, you've been called into the greatest league on the planet. This is Team Jesus. You are in Him. You are no longer your own. You are no longer Jew. You are no longer Gentile. You are now part of the one people of God. And with that comes a certain level of behavior. There is a certain way that you must walk that is consistent with your calling. Walk worthy of the calling of God. Here's a question for you. Without reading these verses again, if you tried to guess what our normal response would be to this calling, what, the, what we would normally fill in the blank as the behavior that is consistent with the calling that Christ has given us, what would most people fill in the blank? What do most people consider to be the most important thing about representing Christ? Most of the time, it's something individual. They think of personal Bible reading. They think of personal holiness. They think of personal prayer. But what does Paul start with? He doesn't even start with the personal. He starts with the interpersonal. He starts with, like, his starting point, like, the number one way that you represent Jesus in his new community is interpersonal. In our relationships with one another, notice the attitudes that are called for here. Look at verse 1. I, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, notice his humility even in speaking here. In light of who you are in Christ, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And now he's going to describe what that looks like. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. Now just stop right there. Humility and gentleness. Humility is a general lowliness of opinion. Like, not thinking highly of yourself. It's literally the opposite of pride. And it's something that comes across in our relationships with others. Gentleness is a lack of abrasion. I mean, you, you think of, like, gentle sheets, gentle towel, gentle people. They're soft. They're, they're easy to be near. He's saying, if, if you are the kind of person that walks worthy of Christ... You don't think you're everything. You actually think lowly of yourself, and you're also gentle in your dealings with other people. Now, if I'm writing my list of ways to best represent Jesus, gentleness typically isn't coming up to the top of the list. Why? Because I'm not naturally a gentle person, as evidenced by earlier. <laughs> and yet it's what Christ called for. He goes a step farther. He says not only with humility and gentleness, but look at this. He adds... With patience, bearing with one another in love. Both of these attributes you cannot do without another person. Patience means that you have a long fuse. So somebody does something wrong against you, and it means that you don't immediately blow up. Patience and, I love this one, bearing with one another. Patience is what God does in the Old Testament, where it says that he is long-suffering and that he is gracious. He didn't immediately strike people down with lightning bolts. He showed them grace. Uh, patience has to do more with sin. Guess what this other one has to do with? Non-sinful issues, bearing with one another. Southern translation, putting up with one another. And there's plenty of opportunity for that to go around. I mean, have you ever considered the way that God puts together a church? I mean, the diversity that's represented in this room. And I'm not just talking about the surface things. Sure, there are many different skin colors represented here today. There's many different socioeconomic backgrounds represented here today. There's many different personal preferences here today. Like some people like red and some people like green and some people like this college football team or that football team. Some people like this food or that food. Those things are all like on the surface. But below that, there are some things that are really important to us that are different, like stark different than what other people value. Some of you, for example, value the present and the past. You look back to the past and you want to honor tradition. But some of you are progressive and you want to move forward and you want to move ahead and you're pushing for what's next. Some of you, as we've already stated, you're people-oriented. You want to make sure that everyone around you is happy, like success for you is putting a smile on someone else's face. For some of you, it's the direct opposite. You feel like if you didn't offend them in some way, that you messed up, you weren't telling the truth. 
That's not everyone, but really, some of us do. We're so committed to process and things getting done. We're task-oriented, not people-oriented. We just think, oh, they'll get over it. And this is harmful in a church. I mean, there are explosive differences between every one of us in this room. I mean, things that could blow up the unity of the church. How many of you have ever heard of or been in a church that got in a fight over the worship style of the music? Anybody ever heard of that before? Oh, okay, I guess it's just me. Well, guess what, folks? It happens. And in that, some people want only piano, some people want a full-blown rock band, and guess what? They are very passionate about their opinions. They differ. I'll give you another one. Explosive differences that we have to tolerate in a local church. Robert even mentioned it in his teaching this morning. It's politics. You talk about passion. I mean, we got primaries going on. And we're about to be in election year. I mean, like, you want to see people get riled up about something? Like, sometimes in a church, you can't imagine that anybody who claims the name of Jesus wouldn't vote the exact same way you did. Do you see what I'm talking about here? This isn't just, oh, he likes chocolate cake and this person likes blueberry pie. No, this is like the kind of stuff that would blow up a church. And you know what Paul says is the standard of success? You know what the first way is that you represent the calling of God? It is enduring one another with love. The Southernism, putting up with. Now, let me be clear. It is putting up with one another in love. It is one thing to put up with another. Like, oh, they're so dumb and so I'm just going to tolerate it. But it's something else to be able to do it in love. Putting up with in love is like the dad who wants to watch football on Sunday after church, but instead lovingly allows his kids to watch the cartoons. Now, that's not the application I'm calling you for, but what I'm saying is the dad actually has strong desires, but in love for his children, he would say, here, please do this. The dad who does that resentfully is putting up with, he is not doing it in love. Friends, I am telling you that what is being called of us here isn't just to agree to disagree and to tolerate one another. It is actually bearing with one another in love. It is what husbands and wives do when they debate over where they're going to go for a date night. Because there are some places that I would much rather eat as a husband and there are some places that she would rather eat and I don't throw a hissy fit just because it's her turn. (laughs) That is bearing with one another in love. And what we're learning in parenting and what we're learning in marriage is what we're applying in the local church. We will have major differences with one another. And Paul says the standard of success, the way that you live up to the calling, is for you to actually be patient with one another, loving with one another, and putting up with certain things in love. And then he sums it all up in verse 3, saying, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's amazing. Not just tolerating, but eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He's saying that we we already have unity. We're already one. He's made that clear. You and I are one in Christ, and he's saying now you just got to maintain it. It isn't yours to create, it's yours to keep. And you should be eager to keep it. Like you are exerting every effort to make sure that you are keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In fact, it's in our church covenant. We just reviewed it in our prayer time together. We will work and pray to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It is active. It is ongoing. See, can I just like borrow your attention for a second? So many of us see unity as a passive thing. We think that we're united if we're not ticked off at somebody. Oh, well, I, can, I, I get along with them okay. We didn't got no problems. No, no, that's not what unity is. That's toleration. Unity is an eagerness to find commonality in Christ. And he's saying, you should be working hard to maintain that type of unity with everyone in your local congregation. This is the standard of success. This is what God is calling you to if you're going to walk worthily of the calling with which you've been called. And it is a much bigger deal than you could ever imagine. 
And what I want to get at is that clearly it is more interpersonal than individual. It is more interpersonal than individual. Flip with me, please, over to John chapter 17. This unity is so crucial that Christ himself would pray for it. And he said it would be the primary way the gospel would be put on display. This is priority. Jesus prayed, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them as you have loved me. What did Jesus pray for? Are you noticing this? He's praying that our oneness wouldn't just be toleration. He's saying that our oneness wouldn't just be strong. He's saying that our oneness would be the same oneness that the Father shares with the Son. And then twice in those three verses he says, so that the world may know. You know the primary way that Jesus intended for the gospel to be advanced? Certainly through our lips, but more personally through our lives. Not just personal lives of holiness and discipline and asceticism, but personal lives of love and connection with one another. It is the most obvious way to put him on display. People should come into a place like this and wonder, how in the world are these people getting along so well? It is the most obvious way. I've already picked on myself three times. Right, let me just go ahead and add another one. The most obvious. I sometimes struggle with the most obvious. If you were to announce that you were going to come over to our house this afternoon and we did one of those like rapid pickup kind of things at the house, what would most likely happen is that my wife would want the downstairs to be clean because she knows that nobody's probably going to go upstairs. And she wants the very obvious things like pillows up off of the floor, things vacuumed, just like the stuff that you can see. You know what my tendency is? Anytime she says, we're going to do a big cleanup, I'll go find the most obscure closet in the house <laughs> and try to organize it. I, I, and my reasoning is, well, we're going to get to this other stuff, but like, when do we ever get to the closets? This is cleaning time. Let me take care of the closet. But the obvious thing is what everybody's going to see. I think when it comes to representing Jesus, so many of us go squirrel away at a closet somewhere and think, oh man, I've got this really private thing going on. I pray for hours a day. Like, I, I read 10 chapters of the Bible a day. You, man, you ought to see my radio presets, the stuff that I listen to, or my podcast. I'm telling you, I am representing Jesus well. But the obvious things, the things that everybody else can see, the interpersonal relationship with people in a church, that which Jesus himself put a high priority on, we're like, well, we'll get to that at some point. Friends, I'm telling you, in love, do not pat yourself on the back about your personal only relationship with Jesus if you have a problem with somebody else in the local church. It doesn't work that way. It's Christ's church, and He placed the priority on that which people can see. And you know what He wants people to see? Interpersonal love and harmony with one another. That's the behavior that's being called for. And so I would ask you personally, like right now, just do an assessment. In your own life right now, do you experience any conflict or discomfort with anyone else in this church right now? Do you have any conflict or discomfort with anyone else in this church right now? I'm telling you, friends, based on the authority of this text, you want to walk worthy, you fix that. You fix that. I'll tell you how in a minute, but just know, write it down, to do, fix relationship. Second thing isn't just, is there any conflict or discomfort with anyone in the church, but I would ask this, is there anyone in the church with whom you lack in affection and appreciation? 
So negatively, I'm asking, do you have any conflict? Uh, But positively, I'm asking this. Do you actually experience an appreciation and affirmation for the other members of this church? You say, Justin, that's awful unrealistic. Man, there's no way that I can know everybody in this church and really appreciate them. Look, I can't either. I'm trying. I really do. But I think our progress would be to get to know others in the church and appreciate them in Christ. A little practical way that this could be expressed is just taking that little paper membership directory that we have and praying through a page a day and then just asking the Lord to to line up conversations for you to be able to love and better appreciate those who are in the body. The only reason I'm pointing you this way is because it would be so easy for you to like say, I've reached my relational limit. I'm done. Friends, that's where cliques come from in a church. Let's fight against that. I, look, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not like scared of anything right now. I think the church is very unified. I've been in some horrific places. I'm talking like fights and business meetings kind of places. I don't sense cliques. I like the fact that our small groups switch up all the time, and that kind of inevitably guards against that. Relationships are constantly changing. They're good. But I can't be in every one of your hearts. So I'd ask you, is there any conflict with any other individual in the church? Obedience to Jesus would look like fixing that. And if there's a lack of appreciation for or affection towards someone, cultivate that regularly, steadily. But on what basis? Like, how in the world does that happen? Do, do we just say, all right, uh, got it, Justin. I'm just going to try a little harder. I'm going to take some EQ pills to up my emotional quotient. I've been down lately, and so maybe if I get this supplement, it's going to fix it. Like, how in the world do we move from a lack in this area, this interpersonal expression of obedience, to sufficiency, to abundance? Because right now, this all sounds like a great principle, but we don't have much of a plan. Well, Paul's going to remind you why this is going to be possible in verses 5 through 7. Excuse me, 4 through 6. Look at your text. He he doesn't even break the the thought. And in Greek, this is all one sentence. But it says in verse 4, There is one body, or literally, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see what's going on here? He's reminding them like, hey, you've got more in common than you actually realize. Even though I could literally spend two hours talking about all the differences that we may have with one another, Paul is saying like, hey, don't forget the fact that you were all called into the same thing and you enjoy something in common with one another that is deeper than anything else you could possibly imagine. Some of you know this experience very well where you have friends and family that you love dearly, but you ever heard the old phrase, blood is thicker than water? We've seen it happen. At the end of the day, people with that common family experience tend to unite around one another. Friends, blood may be thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. What he calls us to is even thicker than family itself. You've never met my brother. He has more in common with me than anybody in the world. I'm talking about my biological brother. We even took one of those personality tests. We came up with the same personality, as weird as that is. We pulled for the same college football team. We went to the same school. 14 years, same Christian school. Four years at the same Bible college. I mean, he's an elder at his church. I mean, like, if you just look on, like, commonalities, they all line up. It's amazing. But you know what? If he wasn't in Christ, it would be a hard relationship. Don't you know that? Don't you experience that? You've got family. Man, y'all have, y'all have been through some hard stuff together. Y'all have had some common background and experience. And when they're not in Christ, there's a distance. Paul is saying, remember what you have in common in Christ. There's particularly seven things that you have in common with every believer here that will enable you to appreciate them, to embrace them, Look at the text to see the seven things. You're all part of one body. 
You, you all rep, you, you're all part of the same group. You all represent Jesus' body. You're, you're, you're closely tied to Him. You all have the same spirit. You may not have the same blood type, but you do have the same spirit, the Holy Spirit that indwells you, indwells them. And then notice this, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, you have the same hope. You know what it's like? Like to get down to like, you know, Super Bowl time, and then you have a team that you're hoping will win, and then somebody else happens to be at the party who has the team that they hope to win. And you feel so close to the other people who are sharing the same hope as you. Look, he's saying like, you've got a superior hope, and you all enjoy the same hope. You're all looking forward to the same thing. One hope that belongs to your call. When you were called in Christ, you enjoy the same hope, and then notice this profession. You experience the same one Lord, You confessed Jesus as Lord, one faith, you believe the same thing, one baptism, and I love this today. So we get stuck with a lime green kiddie pool and blue buckets doing a baptism today. If you haven't seen the pool, you've got to come by and see this. It's one baptism. She was immersed, and I'm so glad that we could do that today. But even though this baptism looked a little different than that baptism. We all know that every baptism is still the same. It is still the putting on the wedding ring of being united to Jesus. What was being symbolized today here was the same thing that was being symbolized when it happened to you. You've had the same initiatory experience into Christ. You've undergone the same ritual, the same reality. And then you have this, verse 6, one God and Father of all. Who's the all? Well, in the context, he's talking about the believers, the ones who have this one faith, the one baptism. The one God and Father of all who is over all. He's over all of us. He's through all of us. And in Christ, He's in all of us. Man, that is seven things that we have in common. You don't have to find out like what somebody's favorite movie is or what their favorite hobbies are to connect with someone else in the church. All you need to know has been written here for you already. You've got the same Lord, same call, same hope. You want to know what to talk about? There's your list. You wonder why you don't connect? Well, here's something to connect over. Paul's saying, look, I'm giving you a command, but it is consistent with what is already true of you. It is a consistent command. It is something that you actually can do. So how do we do it? Well, we obey the command, but also we need to recognize Christ's contribution. The first essential... For us achieving this unity, this togetherness, this cooperation is the command. We've got to obey the command. But we also need to embrace Christ's contribution. There's a contribution that is made that enables this whole thing to take place. As hard as that is, because it is hard, admittedly. As hard as it is, it actually comes true on account of what Christ has given us. He has given every one of you something that will enable you to obey this command. And he points out what that is in verses 7 through 16. But let me just read verses 7 through 10 to start off with. Notice the emphasis on giving. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. All right, grace is a word for gift. Given obviously means gift. And then he mentions gift again. He mentions it three times. Now, just to pause here. He's been talking about everybody together, and now he's talking about every one of them individually. And he says that Christ has given to each one of you some kind of a gift, some kind of a capacity, some kind of an ability to be able to obey this thing. And then he's going to give the specific timing of the giving of this gift. And you see it there in verse 8. Therefore, it says, and he references the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things, or excuse me, all the heavens, that he might feel all things. I'll go ahead and tell you, friends, I, I remember like the first few years of tr- like trying to actually read my Bible to understand what it meant, that thing threw me. I had no clue what that's talking about. And I'd venture to say that many of us do because we're not as immersed in the Old Testament literature as the original readers. Psalm 68, the passage that we read earlier in our Scripture reading, is all about the victory of God. It presents him and his chosen king as one who overcomes all of his enemies and he is victorious to the point that he 
triumphs over them, and there is a celebration with his people. When our king wins, we win, right? In this procession, God ascends to the point of highest prominence, and he gives gifts. It's a subtle allusion to what would actually take place in Greco-Roman culture when someone would actually win a battle, when they would conquer, they would come back through their hometown with something of a triumph, a parade. And in this parade, there would be a couple of common features. One is that everything that the victor won would be on display. So the gifts that he had acquired would be on display and sometimes passed out into the audience as an expression of his victory. And to show his final dominance, the captives that had been reclaimed would also be paraded through the streets as well. It's just a normal expression of victory. In God's victory, expressed in Christ, here's what happened. Sure, Christ descended. He came down in human form. He lived a humble life. He was dead and buried. But guess what? He rose again. He overcome, He overcame the power of the grave and not only got back to some zero, but actually ascended into heaven, showing his point of highest prominence that he had overcome everything, every obstacle that had ever been given to him. And when he ascended on high, guess what happened? He gave gifts. He gave gifts to his people, and he sovereignly arranged at that point that everyone who would ever be in him would have certain capacities to obey him. But here's the interesting thing about the text. is It doesn't say that he gave everybody the same gifts. It says that he gave everybody gifts in different proportions or in different measure. Different kinds of gifts. This whole unity thing that God wants, this whole oneness piece that just seems so impossible, guess what? He has sovereignly enabled each one of you to do that in a special way. But here's the thing. He didn't make anybody the total package. He made some of you strong in one way. He made some of you strong in another way. And guess what? You have to rely on one another in the light of that. And so the key is going to be, how can we get all these people with their various gifts working and humming along in the right way? Every one of you who own a business in this building know what it's like to try to get the right people in the right places. you got some people that are phenomenal at sales. You've got a great personality. They're good at interacting with people. You've got some people who are number crunchers who are just good at making sure that everything that you did say that you sell actually gets to them in the right place at the right, right time. Some people are better leaders, some people are better servers. We all wear different roles in whatever company we've ever been in in our entire lives. So it's true in the church. And guess what? In the gifts that God has given you, He intends for all these things to coordinate together. And you know how it happens? Through recognizing that He has given us different gifts. There's two kinds of gifts that He gives. He gives gifted individuals and He gives gifts of competence. So gifts of individuals, gifts of competence. The gifts of individuals are actually listed here in verse 11. Notice, and he gave, this is what Christ gave his church to be able to fulfill this mission of unity. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, we normally think of gifts in terms of capacities and abilities, and Paul means that, but he's also talking about offices. Guess what? Jesus gave certain offices to the church to help them achieve this unity that will put him on display. And the foundation of that, as we saw in Ephesians 2.20 and Ephesians 3.5, are the apostles and the prophets, which, being translated into the 21st century, is where we get this book from. The New Testament itself is the product of the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. It is the foundation of the church. This is God's gift to us to be able to do what we need to do. He gave us apostles, he gave us prophets. And guess what? That ministry died in the first century. We no longer have apostles and prophets floating around today, despite what people may say. See Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3 for more validation of that. But he not only gave apostles and prophets to establish the foundation of the church, but he also gave ongoing offices. And notice these, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Uh, Evangelist is somebody who shares good news. Now you're thinking, well, don't we all share good news? Of course. But some people have a natural capacity and gifting for that. We would think of those who, for example, that we call missionaries. What we often call missionaries are people who are evangelists, people who can do pioneer gospel work in unique settings. I mean, it's just great to talk to the founding members of this church a couple weeks ago to get the history. 
I mean, at some point, somebody's got to help get something started. Churches don't just spontaneously combust, you know, like they just poof. Somebody, it gets on their heart, and they go and they try to plant a church. God gives people inclinations toward that. This is what he means by evangelists, those initial people who come in and preach the gospel to establish a church. But then once the church is established, you also have pastors and teachers. They're closely related to one another. Think concentric circles. You've got pastors. You've got teachers. Not all teachers are pastors, but all pastors teach. The word pastor, by the way, it gets a weird rap. I think most people think of it like clergy. Pastor just means shepherd. Someone who shepherds. Someone who feeds the sheep and cares for the sheep. Some people actually feel like God has given them a capacity to do this ministry and other people have recognized it. That's a gift that God gives to his church. And then there's teachers. Those who actually have the inclination to stand up in front of other people and teach the word. Those are God's gifts to the church. And what are they for? Why did God give apostles and prophets to set the foundation and then evangelists and pastors and teachers? This is so important. Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Why why are, are these gifts of people given? So that you can do with your gifts what God wants you to. So that you can now serve in the way that God wants you to serve. See, pastors don't just do the work of the ministry. They equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The word equip means... It's going to blow your mind. Ready? Equip. It means to give you everything you need to do what you need to do. Sometimes equipping happens in the form of repair. So you go to Matthew and Mark, for example, and the word that's translated equip here is the same word that's used to talk about the disciples mending their nets. If somebody's mending their nets, what are they doing? They're repairing it in a way so that it can be used profitably. Friends, sometimes in life, in ministry, in your day-to-day, certain things will happen and you need to be mended. You need to be healed back to a point of usefulness to God. Sin can mess us up. And guess what? Pastors have a unique role and job to come alongside and help get people back to a point with the truth that they can be using their gifts again. But it's not only defense, it's also offense. Because equipping also means to outfit for a journey. The same word was used in a Greco-Roman context to talk about outfitting a ship before sailing. Making sure that you had all the supplies. Making sure that you have everything that you need. You know what pastors and teachers are doing? Sure, they do ministry. But their primary job and gifting is to equip you for ministry. It's recognizing that, hey, you may actually have some unique capacities to serve Christ in this way or that way. And we want to make sure that not only you're on the bus, to use the old metaphor, but you're on the right seat in the bus. (laughs) That you're serving in the right way. And so, we're working together. You've got the gifts of abilities within the congregation. You've got the gifts of the offices. And this all stirs together to make a nice steaming concoction of the unity of Christ. I want you to look at how it all mixes together. Verse 13. These things happen. The building up of the body of Christ. The work of the ministry as the pastors are equipped will happen until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you see what's happening here? When the pastors equip and teachers equip, and when the people start using their gifts with one another to help one another grow, when they're starting to lean in on one another, it's going to lead to the unity... The unity of the faith, the unity centered around what we all know to be true about Jesus, the knowledge of the Son of God, this is mature manhood. This is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And it it challenges our notions once more. What is it that we normally say? We talk about spiritual maturity and we're normally thinking of ourselves. But when the New Testament text is referring to spiritual maturity, it is referring to the way that we relate to one another. The church reaches this practical oneness as people use their gifts and they're equipped to use their gifts. See, it's not just about you like going to just individually like obey these commands. It's about you working together with others to see these commands realized. It is something that we do together. We must know our role. 
uh, you know that on starting Wednesday, uh, we're going to be doing our Wednesday seminar on Trellis and the Vine, and we'll get to it. Phil's going to kick off our first lesson, uh, and we'll discuss this some, but it'll happen more in our second session that I'll take over. The book does a helpful job at addressing some of the common misconceptions in roles in a church. Every one of us, whether we realize it or not, can, can carry some baggage into what we think a church should be or look like, especially as it pertains to the role of pastor and the role of people. Like, what is a pastor and people? Well, let me give you some common examples of these misunderstandings. Many people have often assumed that the pastoral office, for example, is like that of IndyCar racing. So the way that this model works is that the pastor is the one who's doing all the driving. He's the one that is like representing the team. Uh, He actually gets out there and he circles around the track. And then he comes in and people support him as he does the work of the ministry. But I would say that based on what we see in Ephesians 4, ministry together is less like IndyCar driver and pit crew and more like football team and player coach. On a football team, everybody, everybody's playing. Everybody's got a role to play. But at the end of the day, somebody's quarterbacking. Somebody's delivering the ball. Somebody's pitching it off. I mean, like, there's some primary leadership on the field, but everybody's advancing the ball up. See, that's the difference. There's equipping. There's doing. And the pastor does both. Or I've even heard it used in the realm or arena of the theater. Some have tried to imagine that what happens in a church is actually a pastor up on a stage under lights. And so we cheer on the pastors. There's a music pastor and he does his thing. And then there's a counseling pastor and he does his thing. And there's a youth pastor and he does his thing. And there's the preaching pastor and he does his thing. And so everybody is like here to show up to watch the pastors do ministry. And yet... That's not what the scriptures say is happening. It says that we all do the work of the ministry. So where does the pastor fit in the theater analogy? (laughs) Well, he's on the side of the stage. He's giving lines. He's doing the coaching off time. I mean, off time. He's the one leading the rehearsals. And guess who's up on stage? The church. They're the ones that are doing the ministry. The pastor's equipped for success as ministry happens before a watching world, but it is something in which a pastor is facilitating. He is equipping, and we are doing it all together. And what does it look like practically, though, for these things to take place? How do you use your gifts? There are two ways, and we're done. Verses 15, I mean 14 to 16. The first way that we use Christ's gift is by using truth to protect ourselves. Using truth to protect ourselves. Look at verse 14. Why is all this stuff happening? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The reason why pastors need to be teaching and feeding and equipping is because there is so much error out there, it will disrupt our unity. And one of the first things that we do to participate in the achieving unity, guess what, has more to do with EQ than IQ. Excuse me, more to do with IQ than EQ. We would think that it would be all about the relationship, but guess what? Relationship is centered in information. It is centered in truth. We have to make sure we believe the right thing. Look, let me just go ahead and tell you practically how this would work. If you get some kind of view in your mind that, for example, that Christ is only human and not partially God, but not fully God, I assure you we're going to have some major problems. It will affect the unity of the church. There's no just agreeing to disagree on the message of salvation. We've got to be clear. And the clearer we are on truth, the more we will cooperate with one another. And so he says, the first thing that you do is you listen to the gifted pastors and teachers as they're equipping, and you center yourself on truth so that you're not like a ship that's blown about in the waves. How many of you know people who just like, they buy into whatever the newest thing is on a Christian bookstore shelf? New ideas, some new thing they found on the internet. A church is supposed to be a place of truth where people protect one another because they're listening to the doctrine, to the teaching, and that is the foundation for their unity. There is information before interpersonal relationship. 
The information is the ground of it. And so he says, hey, make sure that you're, 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 you're taken in truth so that you can protect one another against error. But then this is where it gets even more practical. Not only do we use the truth to protect one another, but we also use the truth to build up one another. Verses 15 to 16, everybody's responsibility in the church. Here it is. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see what your obligation is on this? As you know truth, you then give truth to others. Speaking truth in love. You take everything that you're learning and then you start applying it to the people that are around you and the unique ways that God has given you. And I love this, friends. Speaking truth in love. We already acknowledge that some of us are more fact-oriented, some of us are more feeling-oriented, and guess what? Nobody gets out of this one. You've got to have the facts. You speak truth. But you do it with feeling in love. I would, can I just, a warning, if you know that you are a factually driven person, there's no doubt in my mind that you will continue to be fact-driven. Good job. Stick with the word. But here, friend, I warn you, make sure what you say is said in love. The question would be, does this person know that I am for them and their highest good? Can they feel that from you? Do they, do they know that from you? I'm not saying that it takes three years to establish a relationship before you ever speak truth. But if you already know that you lean toward the fact in, I would encourage you, and I've had to do this myself in recent days, spend more time focusing on developing the relationship so that people know that you love them. You are not obeying your role in this church if you only present facts, but you don't do so in a way that people think you love them. And may I say to those of you who are more feeling-oriented, I'm glad that you love others and you are the relational oil that keeps this church from exploding. Thank you for being that. Thank you for compensating for my weaknesses <laughs> as a pastor. But may I also add, there will come a time where you may have to hurt someone's feelings and speak truth. It's not just in love, in love, in love, in love. That's the context. There's still something to be communicated, and that is truth. And you know, God puts it on your heart, you know that some people need the truth of the word to be spoken to them in a kind way. We speak truth in love, and here's the last thing I'll mention of this text. Did you notice in verse 16 the emphasis on every joint and every part working together? When I see a, a, a word like every... It's devastating because no one gets a pass. Every one of you who are part of Christ's church have a responsibility to make it better by speaking truth and love. Every part. And that is where unity comes from. God gives you unique capacities or abilities for sure. You rely on others, but at the end of the day... It is the truth of God being applied to the people of God through the members of Christ that causes the body to grow, to build up, to become one. I didn't realize it because it snuck up on me. The Olympics are just a few months away. So we've got another session of Summer Olympics in which all of us are going to watch sports that we would never watch any other time of the year. <laughs> One of the uh, most interesting Olympic events, at least during the summer, that I have honestly never seen until the, like watching the Olympics itself is that of synchronized swimming. It's a fascinating sport. When you see those individuals, like all of a sudden, like come together as one, like it is, I mean, and some of them do different things at different times. 
But the precision like, that that takes, like I can't even coordinate my own body movements in the water as an individual. And then to get 50 people in a pool and have them do the same thing is mind-blowing. You know, I, in some ways I think that this unity, this harmony is the display of just a synchronized effort on the part of the body of Christ to make him look good. What, what part does individual workouts have in our contribution to the mission of Christ? They make us better for the team. They give us the strength so that we can actually put him on display when we're in these special contexts together. I don't want any of you to walk out of here this morning and think that I, as a pastor, don't care about your personal prayer time or your personal Bible reading or what podcasts you listen to, or what books you read. Those things are immensely important. But they're important for what you do together. Those are the individual workouts, if you will, that enable you to coordinate with others well. But where Christ gets put on display isn't just in your closet by yourself. It is in his group. It is with his church. That is what Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 calls us to. So how do we do that? The two essentials. We embrace the command. We embrace the command to to die to self, to love others in Christ. And can I say, if you're here today and you don't know Christ... (laughs) all this stuff I've described is only possible through him. You're not going to be able to humble yourself and get along with others and put him on display until you submit yourself to him. See, sin is what distances you from him and his people. His righteous wrath is actually exercised toward those who are rebelling against him. And yet Christ satisfied the, the price of that rebellion by living and dying on the cross and then being buried and three days later rising again to show that the payment was paid. And when you trust in him, when you turn from that rebellion and you trust in Jesus Christ alone, you're immediately in him, you're on his team. And with that, you're given the capacity to do and obey this command. You now, I mean, like you have the resurrection power of Christ in you, and it enables you to do all that hard stuff like humility, gentleness, bearing with one another. It is now possible. You can embrace this command. But also, don't try to do it by yourself. Rely on the contribution that Christ has made. He has given you gifts. And some of those are personal. Some of those are unique to you. But the gifts are also interpersonal. Pastors and teachers. Other church members who are strong in areas in which you're weak. Leverage those gifts. Look, I'll tell you this. If you are in here today and you say, I don't have any clue how I should be contributing to the body of Christ. Use that little connection card in the pew and fill it out so that we could follow up with you this week. If pastors are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and you don't feel equipped for the work of the ministry, well, we need to know that. But you may know more than you think. Every Sunday when you come into this place and you're hearing the truth, you you want to know how to use it? With the unique capacities and opportunities that God has given you, you then speak the truth in love to other people. You want just a practical review of how you're doing on this? Just look back over the last week between this Sunday and last Sunday and just answer this question. With whom in the last week did you speak the truth in love? It's just a regular thing for us. It is, it is what we do. Say, so I didn't do it last week. Okay, well, write down something this week and, and, and obey the Lord as you transmit truth to others and help them and encourage them. God has gifted you with that. So there is a command. There is a contribution. But at the end of the day, it is all possible through Christ. EQ, IQ, They may be in conflict in the natural world, but in Christ's world, they work together. They come together, and it is possible for us to be people of doctrine and people of devotion in him and in him alone. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you for your son. We don't want to be uh, apart from him in any way. He enables everything that should be happening in this body. So we come with confidence to him, trusting him to enable our obedience. And, or we trust that through the gifts he's given and other individuals in this church, or that we will be able to use our gifts to serve one another well. Or give us fidelity to truth, but also, Lord, a feeling sense of love to one another. Make us a whole church. Protect our unity. Prosper it with conversions. I pray that people would look in on us and see the reality of the Spirit and the ministry. See the love of Jesus and our love for one another. And so we praise you again for Christ, for it is through him alone that all of this has been made possible. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.